This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Seuss Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I'm putting on a different hat today. Although environmental policy is my normal beat, I have also long been interested in and done research on firearms policy, even having had some of my work cited in a positive Supreme Court ruling. As such, I keep track of the latest research and new books in the field. Recently, I came across a new book by Larry Correa called In Defense of the Second Amendment, and wanted our listeners to have the benefits of his views. Larry, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So, Larry, before we jump into the details of your book, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, please tell us a little bit about your background, including, but not limited to, your history as a writer, and why and in what ways firearms are important to you and what your expertise is and what motivated you to write the book. Uh, sure. So my background, uh, I'm best known as a novelist. Uh, I've written 25 novels now, uh, science fiction, fantasy, thrillers. Uh, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I've won a bunch of awards, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, you know, so I'm, that's what I'm best known for. However, before I became a writer, I was actually in the gun industry. And I, I uh, worked in various gun businesses. I was a military contract accountant. Uh, so that's why, that's why kind of like, I like the numbers. Um, but I was a machine gun dealer. I was an SOT Title VII, uh, for, for those of you out there that know what that means. I was a concealed weapons instructor. And in my state, I was actually one of the busiest concealed weapons instructors for about a decade there. I taught a lot of classes. Uh, I am a huge gun nut. I was a competition shooter. I, d- I did various uh, shooting sports for fun. And what uh, wasn't super good, but I was competitive. Uh, it's just kind of been my passion since I was uh, a, a little kid. I've always been a gun person. I've always been a gun rights supporter. When I was a young man, I kind of got into the Second Amendment fight in my own state. And so this is a subject that I've uh, been passionate about my whole life. And so, you know, years later, I'm a very successful author. And uh, uh, the publishing house Regnery, a nonfiction publishing house, was looking for uh, someone to do a definitive kind of like handy Bible uh, for regular people about the gun debate. They wanted it to be something accessible, uh, but, but, but factual and useful to help people articulate good arguments and also to sway fence setters. And they, and this was in light of the Bruin Supreme court decision was looming. So they said, we need to get somebody who is a, a really good writer and B really knows guns. One of the editor had worked with me on my thrillers uh, many years before. And he said, I've got just the guy. <laughs> and so they approached me. Uh, and like I said, this is a subject that I care about so deeply and, and something I've worked on for so long that I, I would have wrote this book for free, but uh, you know, <laughs> It's too late now. I did. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but you got the contract and the money anyway. Uh, I did, yes. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, no, no, no one can blame you for that. So, Larry, you describe uh, quite poignantly, I, I might say, the range of thoughts and emotions I go through each time I hear of um, a bombing, a mass shooting event, uh, you know, especially uh, if it involves schools, children, 
you know, it's like I, I just immediately I just feel a hole open up. There's sorrow. There's just dismay. Uh, there's also, you know, I hate to say it, but there's also uh, a time when I sit there going, please don't let this be some crazy right wing radical. Please, you know, anything. <laughs> I don't want any of them, but anything but that. Uh, because I know that um, you, you know in advance the, what the pushback's going to be. The, I gird myself to defend myself against the usual baseless rote attacks on firearms. And to be fair, the equally rote but accurate responses uh, defending firearms. Uh, you know, I prefer not to have to make these arguments or go round and round with people. I know what they're going to say. They know what I'm going to say. I wish the politicization of the whole thing would go away. Uh, but you, 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 you talk about that very powerfully, and and you refer to those who politicize such traffic events and the push for gun control at every opportunity as the vultures. Now, talk about the vultures for a bit. What do they hope to accomplish? Not just with regards to firearms. What's their ultimate aim? Well, yeah. So when I refer to them, the vultures is, is kind of like what I'm what I'm going for here is they're perched, they're they're waiting, they're watching, and the instant there's blood and carnage, they swoop in to to take advantage of it. Uh, they are always ready, and the facts of the case don't matter. They have a prepared narrative. Uh, if the facts of the case are something that they can uh, whip into a frenzy, like you're saying, um, please don't let the shooter be me, or please don't be someone like me, someone who can be conflated with me, someone from some group that I also belong to, even if it's something so broad as like basic demographics, you know, if it's something they can flog, they're going to flog. If it's something that doesn't fit their narrative, they'll still lie about it for the first few days. But then once the facts come out, that story will just drop off. But then they go back to waiting for the next opportunity. Um, and and I, I, I try to be in this book, I try to divide anti-gun people, uh, people who vote you know, for gun control, people who push for gun control into basically two camps. And this is in my personal experience in my life. The first camp, the bigger camp, is just regular people who believe what they've been told. They've, they've been fed kind of this narrative their whole life. Guns are bad. Guns are always the cause of all problems. Guns are why we have crime. Uh, you know, uh, guns are only for mass shootings and mass killings and drug dealers and that kind of thing. And they want to do something to help, you know, save the world, save the children. So they got on this bandwagon. Yeah, the belief, the, first. The, the belief that if we could just get rid of guns, everyone would be safe and there would be no more horrible incidents. Yeah, and I, I, I go through the book pretty conclusively with evidence that's not the case. But the second group, the smaller group, but the more dedicated group is the vultures. These are your hardcore political partisans. Um, they despise you having rights. They despise you for having rights, and they don't want you to have them. And no matter what happens, it's going to come down to control, and they're going to perpetually lie. Uh, they will twist, distort. Uh, they will just make stuff up. They, they will use facts that are since disproven. They will use uh, studies that we've shot down. They will throw a you know they'll throw something out there that they know is false but it doesn't matter it's irrelevant it's all about pushing the narrative um and so the first group i in the in the book i try to reach out to and i try to like kind of explain this the vultures i have no mercy uh because they honestly just kind of hate the idea of people having freedom as far as what their ultimate goal is a lot of these people are are kind of like the ultimate control freak type personalities who truly believe that if they were just in charge of everything 
uh, then the world would be a better place if they just you know managed the rest of us. And we've seen that throughout history when different people have that kind of belief. And they're kind of tyrannical. They're, they're tyrannical by nature. And you can't have a pure tyranny in the United States as long as you have an armed populace. Uh, so they, they hate guns. They hate you having them. And they so will the, lie, cheat, and steal for, to get rid of them. Just, just, to, just to clarify. So the vultures aren't just out for your guns. It's not just they have some kind of uh, inborn, irrational hatred of guns. They actually hate guns because they're a symbol of of uh and and a protector of sort of our wider freedoms and rights they whether for uh, paternalist reasons in other words they really think they know what's best for you or for domineering reasons they don't care what's best for you they just want to rule uh the guns are standing in the way of their ultimate goal which is power for them right right because they're not really tra- technically anti-gun because they'll send a SWAT team with guns to to your house <laughs> to disarm you. Yeah. Their guards have guns. I mean, the, the public, I mean, cause if you look at some of these people who fund this stuff, like Michael Bloomberg uh, funds moms demand action and he's, he's a billionaire. Michael Bloomberg is protected by men with guns. You know, uh, the, these, the politicians, uh, the congressmen that vote for this, the senators that vote for this, they're protected by men with guns. Um, but as long as it's like the agents of the state who work for them or their personal bodyguards, those guns are fine. Uh, it's the rest of us uh, peasants that you're, you're standing in the way. So who is the target audience for In Defense of the Second Amendment, and what did you hope to accomplish by writing it? You know, that was um, – honestly, there's something like I really had to decide on the tone when I was writing this because, like I guess I'm a novelist. You know, this is how I come at it. I'm a storyteller. Um, I, so I'm not an academic. I wasn't trying to prevent you know present something like dry and statistical – I mean, I get into that, but most I'm trying to tell a story and it's for people who are on my side already. I'm trying to help them because there's a lot of people on my side that get into these debates. They try to sway their friends. They try to sway their loved ones, but they can't articulate why, you know, they know what they believe, but they can't put it into good words. And so I'm trying to help them with that and then provide them with a lot of facts they can use to back this stuff up. There's you know, tons of footnotes here. But on the other side, there's also the people that are fence setters, the people who are like kind of thinking about guns. They're not anti-gun, or maybe they're a little anti-gun, but but they kind of also see the purpose. Uh, and really, I came to this conclusion of like this is a, a great audience because in 2020 we saw gun sales across America just take off; they just exploded, um, record record-shattering numbers. And the reason being, it was um, the breakdown of law and order in a lot of our cities around the country during the riots and the chaos and the COVID. Uh, and people were standing in line at gun stores and they were paying scalpers prices, getting whatever they could. So the kicker was that wasn't me and my people, <laughs> you know, we don't pay MSRP. <laughs> yeah, right. So it was new people. And you talk to any gun owner, any gun dealer in America, they'll tell you the same thing. It was new. It was new first time buyers. And there was people from all these demographics that aren't traditionally among the anti-gun propaganda people, uh, demographics that are considered you know, gun owners. And these were all just new people coming into this. So part of this book, too, is aimed at people who had that realization that, you know, wow, I am on my own. Um, There are situations where I can call 911 and 911 will say, sorry, good luck. Uh, Work it out. You know, best wishes. We can't come. And so I I have a lot of the book is aimed at, you know, like the people on my side, people who are, are, are thinking about it. Um, Perfect example, uh, a good friend of mine and his wife 
the husband has wanted to own a gun for self-defense for years, but his wife won't let him. Um, and, and like, the, but the, her arguments for it are all the emotional, typical narrative arguments. And so I wrote this book for guys like that to, to, to argue with their wives and give their wives this book. Um, so those are my, those are my primary audiences. Now the vultures, I do not expect to sway any vultures. Um, if they buy any of my books, I'm sure it'll be to burn them. <laughs> That's still money in your pocket. So. Oh, I took a royalty. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but you know, there's there's still another group. So you call the finch sitters. There's the vultures, but there are also the people who are anti-gun because of what they've been told. Uh, you know what what they believe based on what they've been told, but they have open minds. Uh, yep. You know, so so they're 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 open to rational, reasonable arguments. Yeah, emotionally, they're predisposed not to like guns. Uh, they don't want to. They don't want to hunt. They don't understand people who do. Uh, but they're also, you know, rational and um, they're open to debate. I don't know how large a pop part of this pop the population this is anymore, uh, based on work that I do on climate issues. But uh, there are some of them, and I take it your book's also aimed at them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, anybody who is an honest person and is willing to look at facts and logic will like this. And one of the things I was trying to do um, is there's a lot of gun books out there. There's a lot of books about gun rights and gun politics and history and the Constitution. Um, but they tend to be kind of dry. Um, they're, 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 they tend to be kind of uh, coming from the, the point of view that, yes, we have the facts on our side. Now I'm going to beat you over the head with the facts. But a lot of people, they, they've come to their conclusion because of emotion. Well, I'm a, I'm a novelist. My job is, is telling stories in a way that uh, – uses human emotion. And so the way I come at this is I, I, I give a lot of stuff, just a really brutally honest perspective. It's like, this is what we feel. Uh, this is why we feel the way we feel. This is why we believe what we do. And I get into the emotions and I, I get into the frustrations and I get into how some of the things that they propose, the gun control things they propose actually make the problem worse and actually hurt more people and make more people helpless. And I, so I try to get into that, but then I also back it up with all the facts because the truth is on our side. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting side. I think there's a lot of really good books out there about gun rights, but I was just trying to come at this from an angle that was going to hit a different audience than most of them. Yeah. So Larry, what are the merits of allowing, this is one of the topics that really gets some people riled up. What are the merits of allowing armed teachers or administrators or other kinds of workers in school? Oh, yeah, that's one that I talk about in depth because I've got a lot of personal experience with that. Because uh, my state, Utah, where I taught concealed carry, uh, we have had um, the ability to conceal carry in schools for a very long time now. I think we're coming up on almost two decades. It's been quite a while that we've had this. And the, the thing is, uh, I go into this in great depth in the book in that what stops a attacker, what stops a mass shooter, what stops a mass killer is a violent response. Now, that violent response can either come immediately from somebody who's already present or really close, or it can come in time when the cops arrive. And that could be five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour. And it's just simple logistics. The longer the bad guy has to work, the more casualties are going to be. That's all it comes down to. By allowing guns in school, we take schools off that list of really soft targets. Uh, we know for a fact that these, uh, these, this type of bad guy prefers 
soft targets. They have flat out said that in their manifestos. They love gun-free zones. Uh, we have had bad guys say, I'm going to attack this location because I know no one there will be able to fight back until the cops get there. Um, and so they know this. They're not, a lot of these guys are evil, and some of them are really crazy, but they're not stupid. Um, so by arming teachers, we are just putting in a speed bump. We're providing a faster response. Now, when I say that, I always got to clarify to people, because like I said, this is how we do it here in this state. and done it for a long time, and it's worked out fine. It's not mandatory. It's voluntary. And by that, I mean, a lot of people try to portray this as, you know, I'm a teacher. I don't want to carry a gun. That's not my job. You're going to make me carry a gun. No, 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 no. Of course not. Um, gun, carrying a gun is a personal thing. It's not for everybody. Some people just aren't suited for it. And that's fine. That's your personal decision. But you know, I guarantee at every school in America, there's at least one or two or three people who are capable, who are able to do it, who are willing to get trained, who are willing to practice, who are willing to put in that time and effort to carry a firearm safely. And then they're not cops. They're not going to be responding to crimes. They're not going to be searching lockers or arresting kids for having marijuana or anything like that. That's not their job. They're just teachers. They've got a gun on their person, hidden under their clothes. No one ever knows it's there until that gun is produced in case of emergency. So I'm a huge proponent of guns in school. And I, I honestly wish that more states would follow, uh, follow our example on that one. Yeah. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, and we hear the arguments. We hear a few arguments. First off, don't mandate. Well, you've already addressed that. No one's talking about forcing teachers to, uh, to carry guns. Secondly, we hear, well, they, uh, you know, a teacher will say, well, I'm just not prepared. I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I, I couldn't shoot somebody. Well, okay, then then don't carry. No one's saying that you should uh, try to overcome that and carry a gun. Uh, but then the other thing is they say, oh, well, that'll just make the situation worse uh, because, mm. uh, you know, uh, they could end up shooting somebody that's not uh, the intended target. You know, you, you you talk about that a bit. I do, yeah. I go into that in the book because a lot of the – all the all – the, um arguments against uh, allowing CCW in schools always boil down to emotional what ifs. Um, and the, the, you're just going to make it worse. No, the entire history of, uh, of mass killers proves that that is not the case. Um, it is almost never the, the responder making anything worse. You're already in a nightmare situation. I say, it's hard to make things worse sometimes. Yeah. You, you've got a crazy guy committing a, a bloodbath. Anything that interrupts his plan, anything that bursts his bubble is a win. And we've had situations where, like, it just took resistance. They didn't even necessarily get shot, but just someone pulled a gun and shot at them, or they thought they were going to get shot, where it forced them to retreat, forced them to take cover. And, and while they're doing that, they're not killing kids. Uh, we've had situations where somebody burst their fantasy bubble and fought back, and then all of a sudden the guy retreated and then killed himself. Actually, self-inflicted gunshot wounds is a really common way that these events uh, are resolved. Uh, and I've got a bunch of cases in the books where that's happened. So it's one of those things where, honestly, it's a no-brainer. And, and the, the you're just going to make stuff worse. That, it's, a, it's a hypothetical. It's the same thing as they say, well, if you allow guns to school, teachers are just going to freak out and shoot the kids. Uh, teachers are going to do this. And here's the thing. If you have a teacher that, that that's their nature, why are they employed as a teacher? <laughs> Guns are not. 
Uh, well, you know, yeah, and if that was their, if that's their nature, do you think the law saying they can't have guns is going to restrain them if if they're already inclined to to assault and beat children? Uh, no, I've got bad news for you. He, that, that dude is already doing bad stuff. Yeah, well, that's uh, so. You write about something called defense in depth. I think this is an important concept. What is that, and why is understanding it important? When I talk about defense and death, I, I kind of use the military analogy. Uh, that's, that's where the term comes from originally. In, in war, you don't just arm the troops at the front, because if you just arm the troops at the front and everybody in the rear is unarmed, then the bad guy is just going to go around and hit where you're soft. Um, and so you have defense and depth. You have layers of defense. You never, ever just have one level that you count on because it's just going to get circumvented. Or it could fail. That one layer could fail, and then you're in trouble. So you have layers, and so that way, at each step of the way, it hits resistance. Now, you see this in systems um, like uh, any, any IT, information technology stuff. You don't just have one layer of defense. Um, they, they'll have several layers of defense. They'll have you know passwords, and they'll have you know uh, secure stuff. I'm not an IT guy, so I'm mangling this. But why is it that when it comes to self-defense of our lives against criminals and bad actors, we have one, we have one level of defense, the police? That's, that's what they insist on, that, that there's no other layer of defense. I mean, in a car, I've got turn signals, I've got seatbelt, I've got airbags, I've got anti-lock brakes, I've got all these safety features on my car. Each one is designed to save my life. If, that, if one fails, the next one kicks in, right? Why is it then that, like, to defend a school, it's like, cop, that's it? Well, it's like, what if the cop is not there? Too bad. <laughs> that's, that's, the one la- that's the only layer of defense that the vultures will allow you to have. And as we've seen in places like Uvalde, where the police uh, response was the most abysmal, awful thing you've ever seen, I actually had to tone down what I wrote in the book at the time because the lawyers said, you, you know, you can't just come out and call them that. Um, but in that situation, the one layer of defense that the state provided utterly and completely failed. Yeah, no, and it, there was no other layer. Here they had a, you know, they had they had an officer on site, and the response was immediate, and it consisted of hurry up and wait, wait for the yep. next layer to wait with the next set of cops to show up, and they waited for the next set of cops to show up, and they waited for the commanders to okay everything, and when some wanted to go in, they said, no, 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 you you need to hold back. Uh, why? Well, because someone might get hurt. <laughs> well, that's uh, the nature of a gunfight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's what, A, that's what they're paid for. Uh, and B, there were already people getting hurt. They were called students, the people they were supposed to protect. Uh, yeah. But in any case, I, uh, go, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and the, the thing about that is you're laying on that one line of defense, the people who are already there are in the situation whether they want to be or not. They don't get a vote. The bad guy, the bad guy decided. The bad guy picks the, the place, the time, the engagement. Uh, the good guy can only respond. If you take tools away from the people who are there, then they just have fewer options. If there had been a teacher there with a gun, that teacher might have been able to stop them. I, I mean, I can't say. I can't predict the can't future. can't say for sure. Yeah. But we have seen around America, in like all sorts of other situations, and I go into dozens of these cases in the book, uh, and cite great many more and point people to where they can find even more of these. Um, the vultures always like to say a good guy with a gun is a myth. That is not true. I, we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases where armed citizens were that first line of defense, and, and it stopped the carnage. 
and we have tons of examples of that. So that's just a flat out lie. And well, so, uh, the most apparent evidence of that, it seems to me, is the fact that almost you know universally. Cops are thought of as, you know, we've got what's going on in Atlanta and other places today. But in general, cops are thought of as the good guys, and they're all armed. So yep. they're, you've already got the good guy with the gun. Do they say cops are myths? That, that, you know, I know that we went through this uh, uh, madness of crowds like the tulip mania uh, recently where we thought it would be a good idea to defund the police and suddenly cities would be safe. Uh, but hopefully most people have been disabused of that notion now. Um, yeah, I go into that in the book. It's actually the the how awful that worked out. We reversed thirty five years of downward crime trends yeah. in one year, and uh, and 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 yet they are good guys with guns, right? So the 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 myth is sort of uh, it was egregious to start with. Even before you talk about private citizens with guns, are cops good guys? And if they are, and you admit that they can help then the good guy with a gun is ipso facto not a myth. Um, anyway, I mean, is not, is not a true, uh, the, the myth is falsified. So, and, and in schools, so in schools you might talk about defense in depth. So you've got maybe resource officers. You've got uh, metal detectors with doors. You've got doors locked from the inside. You know, during an emergency we can get out in a fire, but every other door is locked. You've got... Uh, maybe reinforce locks at, at in classrooms and armed teachers, right? I mean, that's the depth, right? It's one one layer after another to make it harder for someone to do bad things. Exactly. It just you don't ever count on one thing that's going to fail. And it's interesting because uh, in, in these situations, I'm going to use a real life example, and I, I try to use stories like this in the book. But back when I was teaching concealed carry, I would teach teachers for free. Um, and so if you worked at a, or not just teachers, but if you were an employee at a Utah school, I would teach your concealed carry class for free. No problem. I mean, my kids go to school too. <laughs> and so, um, at one time I had a, a principal and a couple teachers and the janitor slash bus driver all came to my class because the week before, uh, they'd had an incident at school where a kid had gotten violent. He'd brought a gun, uh, and the school resource officer was AWOL. They, he just wasn't where he was supposed to be and they couldn't find the cop. So a bunch of unarmed teachers took care of the problem. They, they got it taken care of safely. They talked the kid down. No one got hurt. Um, but this principal looked around and realized, it's like, wow, uh, the cop that we were assigned wasn't here. He was gone. And that's it. That was it. We were it. We were, we were our own first responder. So he went amongst his teachers, and he said, okay, who here wants to do this? Who here has the background, the knowledge, the training? Who who's interested in doing this? And he found several people he trusted, and brought them. And the the bus driver was actually a uh, recently returned Iraq vet who had a lot of experience and a lot of training. And this guy had a very actually impressive resume, you know, paid for by the U.S. government. Um, why wouldn't I want this young man, this this school employee, armed in in my kid's school? I mean, this guy. This guy was as capable as any of the cops who would be arriving in 10 minutes as far as tactical abilities. So it's one of those things. And probably just, more. Applying, yeah, and probably more so uh, in terms of experience, right? I mean. Oh, uh, yeah. This guy, this guy had been there and done that. And actually, I, have a, I, I mentioned a friend of mine in the book um, who is a substitute teacher now uh, is one of the things he does. And he's a, he's a retired Green Beret. 
um, uh, he was a, uh, 18 Delta weapon sergeant or 18 Delta uh, medical sergeant in the green. Uh, he was United States special forces. This man has had like eight tours in, in various third world nations doing, uh, you know, crazy stuff. I mean, the guy is a literal war hero and he's not allowed to carry a gun by his school district. Why? Oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So what a waste. Larry, the second amendment, it, 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 we hear this all the time. Oh, well, you don't need, you don't need a AR 15 to hunt. You don't need a, uh, you know, what, whatever. The second amendment was not about protecting the right to hunt as much as I like to hunt, nor was it really about allowing personal defense against crime, which at the time probably was, was pretty, sparse, but also included concerns about sort of Native American depredations. So we weren't getting along. Uh, so why was it written into the Constitution? Why, why is it still important today? I've heard multiple politicians, people like Joe Biden very recently, uh, policy wonks and talking heads say the people would be incapable of preventing tyranny through force of arms. Uh, you know, I think Biden said, well, you, that's just foolish. You need F-16s to fight America. You need tanks. And yet, I look around in our recent wars, and I don't recall the North Vietnamese having a lot of uh, jet fighters to fend us off or uh, tanks. I certainly don't recall the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or ISIS taking the field with jets or tanks until we abandoned them in Afghanistan. Uh, they weren't armed with such weapons. And yet, <laughs> we were the ones that retreated. Uh, they fought us with primitive weapons, primitive explosives, personal devices, and yet, to all appearances, they won. We're not there. They are. They're doing the evil they were doing before. Um, so it seems to me it vitiates the argument that, uh, you know, if the Second Amendment, which I think it is, is about fighting, giving people the ability to fight tyranny, it's uh, it doesn't work because you got to have the same kinds of weapons that the military has. Yep. This is this is actually where the title of the book, In Defense of the Second Amendment, comes from. Is really this thing because I like you. I mean, hunting is great. I'm a competition shooting guy. I shoot for fun. That stuff is just perks. Um, you'll often see the government talk about sporting purposes. That's not what the Second Amendment is about. The Second Amendment was the founding fathers codifying that we have the right to defend ourselves with weapons, and that defense included everything up, you know, from regular criminals or dangers, all the way to your own tyrannical government, up to and including that, which they had just done. Um, and so it's interesting because now they've got this kind of narrative they're spinning that, well, your guns are useless, so the Second Amendment's pointless anyway. We'll just destroy you. Eric Swalwell is who I was, I wrote an article many years ago responding to, and actually it's included in the book, and I, I, I beefed that chapter up. Um, but it was Eric Swalwell, the congressman, who was saying that your Second Amendment's useless because we have nukes. The government has nuclear bombs. <laughs> And it's just, when I heard that, it was such a profoundly ignorant statement of, of it was so I was so I was befuddled by it. It was so out there. It's like, OK, so let's say Omaha, Nebraska gets uppity. Are you going to nuke Omaha, Nebraska? You know, so, there there are some of your voters there, too. No, no it's, it's 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 worse, right? It's 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 worse because it's not Omaha, Nebraska. It's some people in Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, the, the revolutionaries, there were three percent of the population that joined the revolution. Three percent fought for the crown and the rest sat on their hands, maybe feeding both sides. Uh, 
So well, there are some people. Yeah, there's there's some people in in Omaha that get uppity, and maybe in Dallas, and they're going to nuke Omaha and Dallas to get those few people when they won't even nuke. I mean, they could have nuked Kandahar. They didn't, right? Uh, I, I suppose they could have nuked North Vietnam. They didn't. Uh, but they're going to well, do it to I, the. I, but his basic argument is, we don't do it there because that's bad. But we're going to do yeah. it here if we don't like. Uh, well, that's the thing. They, they actually, themselves. That's crazy. They hate us a lot more than they hate ISIS, <laughs> is, 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 yeah. is the kicker. That's the um, terrible thing, yeah. But what it comes down to is I, I go into in great detail in the book of like, you know, the, the, the Second Amendment is the big red button on the Constitution. It is the kill switch. It is the emergency off switch on our experiment with the Republic. Um, and it's there for that reason. And we, we all, everybody who knows about this stuff prays that we never, ever have to push it and we don't beat our chests about it. So when I see politicians like Joe Biden uh, saying, well, we got fighter jets, we'll just kill you with fighter jets. Well, first off, having an American president talk about flippantly joke about killing American citizens with fighters is crazy. But, and he's doing this at a Martin Luther King Day uh, event where Martin Luther King fought for peaceful resolutions and had his Second Amendment rights denied by the government. He, he, he applied to carry a gun and they wouldn't let him. Um, and it's, so it's interesting. We get this. Well, I used to be a military contractor. That was one of the jobs I did. I worked on a lot of different contracts uh, for, I was a finance manager of a military contractor. Um, and I go through this, like the logistically what they're talking about, because if you look at the Venn diagrams of the people who uh, maintain these weapon systems, drive these advanced weapon systems, uh, build these advanced weapon systems, and then, you know, the circle of gun owner, uh, it's a stack of pancakes, okay? Those Venn diagrams overlap a lot. That they, The people they expect to bomb with these things are the people that run them. So there's that logistical issue. There's also the problem where all these advanced weapon systems in America, there's not a clear front line. It's not like uh, in Afghanistan where we're working off of a couple big bases and a bunch of FOPs. It, it, here in America, the only thing separating those advanced weapon systems from the people they expect to be bombing with them is a chain link fence. And all those people that drive those things go home <laughs> on the other side of that fence. There's no separation here. Um, and so when they start throwing this stuff out, I, I start writing the numbers on it. And one of the things I point out was at any given time in Afghanistan, we were fighting roughly 20,000 20, ish insurgents. It's hard to pin this down exactly, but about approximately 20,000 enemy combatants at any given time. If you take a fraction, a tiny fraction of a percent of American gun owners, um, you are looking at a number of potential combatants that is orders of magnitude greater than the number of insurgents we fought in Iraq or in Afghanistan. And, and so to have this idea just as flippantly, I can just use F-15s to, to kill whoever I disagree with. That's not how this works. History, logistics, um, it just does not work that way. So the Second Amendment is still actually perfectly viable and valid. Um, it would just be extremely messy. And that's why we don't want to push the big red button. And, and I and, really wish Joe Biden would stop talking about it. Yeah, now, not just him. I mean, so you, know, you talked about Swalwell. There, all sorts of politicians do this. But, you know, they, it's also assuming that uh, the people who would be expected to drop the bombs or fire the tanks or do whatever would just blithely follow orders and start killing American citizens. And sure, some would. But my some suspicion would, but... is many would not. They'd say, look, 
when we were going to fight foreign wars against people who are supposedly trying to kill us, that's one thing. But when you're telling me that my aunt and uncle are the ones that are the targets, maybe I'm not so quick to pull the trigger. Right. In fact, maybe I turn the gun on you. Yeah, exactly. And that would there would be a lot of officers getting fragged. They like to talk real flippantly, like like guys that operate drones are just automatons, like the machines they fly. No, uh, you're you're sending this guy to kill people in his hometown who he went to high school with. Why? Because they own weapons that he owned himself. Uh, and then, like, if you t- get an idea of what's happening, we also have this big rural versus urban divide on this particular issue uh, about the Second Amendment. If you take a look at uh, Illinois right now, they just pushed through an assault weapons bin, and it, it's it's very draconian. It's it's clearly going to be unconstitutional according to recent Supreme Court rulings, but they pushed it through anyway. Uh, I want to say Illinois has 110 counties. I believe last I saw it was like 92 or 94 of them, the sheriffs of those counties have said, no, we will not enforce this law. We will not do this. So when you have the people saying, well, we're just going to use all these, um, you know, we have the army, we have the police, you, we're just going to crush you. That's assume they, they just assume that these people, and they're usually in the blue city enclaves, they just assume that the people in the rest of America, like the, 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 those who are in the army, those who are in the military, those who are law enforcement, that they're all just going to do what they're told. Uh, they don't like those people anyway. <laughs> uh, a few years ago, I had, a, I had an altercation where um, this was as a fiction writer. Uh, I, I'm an outspoken conservative in an industry that's overwhelmingly not. It's you know, 99% out of Manhattan. And I, I upset a bunch of people by being an openly conservative author. And I was going through the whole uh, doxing and swatting kind of thing where people were trying to get me in trouble. And I was wound up in a conversation with my local sheriff's department. And I was trying to explain what was going on about this. And I, I said to the guy, uh, look, I don't know what your polit- politics are, and I don't want to offend you, but this is a political thing. But the reason there, there's axe grinders out there trying to you know, get me in trouble. And, but I said, I don't know what your politics are. I don't want to offend you. And the cop goes, stops me and goes, hey, hey, just, you know, dude, I'm a, I'm a sheriff's deputy in rural Utah. What do you think my politics are? <laughs> And and that's the case, too. And so, yeah, there are a lot of police departments that would enforce this kind of thing and be OK with you know drone bombing citizens. But there's a lot that wouldn't. And so when they think that this would just be like a cut and dry kind of thing, no, it, it would be a national nightmare. It would be a lot more like Bosnia uh, or Rwanda than the Americans, the last American Civil War. Hmm. <sighs> not yeah. a happy subject. I was about to say, the, the thought of it is not... Uh... <laughs> doesn't uh, it makes you squirm right um it does, yeah so larry big picture if you can make just one point what's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion of firearms and the second amendment and your book um actually that is have heart we are winning um and i go into this in the book quite a bit we uh we have made great strides uh we have won a lot of things we have won a lot of battles on this front and also, we are winning the culture war. We are gradually and slowly uh, winning the culture war, uh, pushing back on this. And I close the book with just a bunch of advice of what we can do to help people and educate people and bring up our friends and family and neighbors and community and kind of get them on the right path to uh, being educated and knowledgeable and capable and able to defend themselves. And because the Second Amendment is for everybody. It's the Second Amendment belongs to every American. 
Well, Larry, on that uh, optimistic note, I want to tell you it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I want to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and our listeners. And why don't you tell our listeners how they can get your book? Sure. It's available at bookstores everywhere, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. And also, if you like audiobooks, you can get it on audible.com. Well, listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Larry Correa and firearms policy issues in general. And as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, please consider attending Heartland's forthcoming 15th International Conference on Climate Change at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista in Orlando, Florida, on Thursday, February 23rd to Saturday, February 25th. Uh, the conference will have uh, panels and presentations of many of the world's top climate and energy experts discussing the latest climate science and wrong-headed energy and policy solutions the world governments seem determined to impose on us all. Also, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.